Let's Chat Health with Anne Budenberg, empowering patients to be involved in their healthcare. So I'm joined today by Professor Brian Dolan, OBE, and this third episode, we're going to chat about hashtag end PJ paralysis and the sort of overall theme of deconditioning. So in the last episode, we talked about a healthy mind and a healthy body, or if you want the Latin version, mensana in corpore sano. And this in some ways follows um, quite a similar theme. So I first came across um, hashtag end PJ paralysis in December 2018, when my father was admitted to hospital following a stroke, which affected his frontal lobe. Um, and although this didn't affect his uh, mobility, it affected his um, really a decision decision making center. So this um, obviously presented um, a number of challenges. But one of the things that we noticed, so every day when um, we were going to visit, um, there was this slightly faded poster in the lift and it had this tagline, get up, get dressed, get moving. And I thought, well, what a great idea. Um, Because so many people just sitting around in hospital, um, nothing happening for them. Anyway, along with this, there were a number of statistics about the decline in patient strength, the loss of muscle mass and their function for every day and every week spent in hospital due to inactivity. So what I didn't know at the time that this process actually had an official name, hospital-induced deconditioning. So this whole thing was quite a sobering poster, you know, reading it every time we visited. Um, it didn't quite connect with the reality which what was actually happening. So this great idea wasn't actually being played out in hospital. And it, it became even more poignant as, you know, dad was in hospital for four weeks. So pretty much the whole of December. Um, then he got home, then he was readmitted on the 4th of January and he was in hospital again for another three months. Uh, so this was a huge length of time. So this deconditioning was becoming a real problem. Um, so we had this constant feeling at 89, unless he was moving every day, how it's going to be a huge battle for us to get back to normality with decreasing chance of mobility. So Brian, you've sent me some fantastic resources and I've really enjoyed reading them and I, you know, I'm going to stop talking in a minute, um, but I just wanted to introduce one um, one aspect which I just thought was so well, kind of mind-boggling, really. Um, and it was from your presentation that you did in um, Toronto um, earlier this year, so it's pretty recent. And one of the things that you were saying there was that if you are over eighty, a week in hospital take, can take twenty percent off your quad power so this is for people who who you know know your thighs the power in your thighs that's this the muscles for standing up just a simple act of standing up you can lose 20 percent 1.5 kilo of muscle loss 
10% of aerobic capacity. So that ability to, to walk without being breathless and have to, have to stop. The second thing the hospital inactivity can cause is, you know, accelerated bone loss, muscle weakness for um, three to five years. 48% increase in risk of disability, five times the risk of needing institutional care on discharge. Quite, it's quite alarming, those figures. And this directly leads to all sorts of other issues, which Brian's going to talk about. He knows much better than I do. So that is absolutely enough for me. And I'm just going to pass you across now and let Brian introduce himself and the fantastic work that he does and the research that he's done. Well, thank you for that uh, very generous obituary. <laughs> um, I'm Brian Dolan and right now actually I'm in Christchurch and it made me smile pained, painfully when you talked about uh, presenting in Toronto in September because if only we could travel, you know. Um, I did a, a grand round uh, for them the, uh, the Dr. Fisher ran round, but because the time zone difference, it was at 4 a.m. New Zealand time for their 1 p.m. in, in uh, Toronto. And uh, in fact, it was, it was uh, about 100 odds, 150 people from you know, doctors, nurses, therapists from around that region who came. But we've been talking about this for a, a quite a while now. And, and in fact, the phrase, get up, get dressed, get moving, uh, originates from a, a great friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Amit Aurora. And around 2016, he and I coincidentally, entirely, uh, you know, of, of, as these things can often occur, um, we, 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 we kind of created these, both of these things. For me, NPJ paralysis is people come into hospital, they get in their pajamas, they're paralyzed in their pajamas till the day they leave. So the campaign is called End PJ Paralysis. But whatever it's called, and I often say this, it doesn't matter what it's called, what matters is the spirit behind it, which is about how do we ensure the mobilization of people. And as it happens, the, the theme of the presentation for Toronto was that it's the second pandemic, because globally over the last two years, and particularly in 2020, we've had the world's largest social experiment where we asked billions of people to stay at home. And that is not without consequence because we're not, we're not wired to stay still. We're not, as a species, you know, it's about movement. And it's the lack of movement that is so harmful. And it leads to the, to the deconditioning. Frequently hospital required. Uh, and as you described with the percentages you gave, you know, and, and one and a half kilos of muscle mass loss, one of those kilos is from the, the quads and the hip, uh, from, uh, from the hip muscles. So muscles that keep you standing. So, you know, you'll have seen it with your own father. I've seen it in my own family where people may walk into hospital, but they leave in a wheelchair or indeed even leave on a stretcher and never actually fully walk again. And that is not about bad people. You know, people who work in healthcare are incredible women and men who come to work to do the right thing. But as a, as a great physio colleague said to me, 
what we sometimes do is we unintentionally kill people with kindness. And there's an extraordinary um, uh, uh, nurse who, who talks about that. And she, you know, she talked about but, but her own mother. Um, and, and, you know, that's the effect that it had. So this is a real thing. And strangely enough, we have known about it since before the NHS was founded. So it, it, in fact, this is December. This month, 74 years ago, Dr. Richard Asher, the father of Jane Asher, uh, the actress, uh, he wrote a, a paper in the BMJ called The Dangers of Going to Bed. And he didn't talk about deconditioning, but he described everything that is what we now call deconditioning. So we've known about it for a very long time. And our geriatrician colleagues, our, geri our gerontology colleagues have been talking about it for a very long time. But I think it's in the last five years or so, it's really risen in the professional and increasingly public consciousness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we can all relate to it and you see it as soon as you walk into hospitals. Um, the And this sort of waiting, This um, I had a, an example recently, um, an uncle who was perfectly fine and he wasn't getting dressed. And again, he was complete by, he was in for, oh, several months actually, but in the end, he was waiting for his discharge, waiting for the care package, which is obviously so common. Um, you know, the system is sort of clogged up, um, which I, I, I suppose kind of brings us on to, you know, you talk a lot about valuing patients' time. And mm. I wondered yeah. whether you wanted to elaborate on that. Yeah, it's it's... <laughs> It's, I suppose in a nutshell, it's while our time in healthcare is busy and important, our patient's time is sacred. And where the last thousand days comes from, in fact, it was a talk I was giving here in Christchurch some, some years ago, a good decade ago, talking to a group of older people's doctors, nurses, therapists, managers. And we were talking about lean thinking, which is a way of identifying and eliminating waste. And one of the biggest wastes, of course, is, is time. And I was talking to him, and this out of this out of nothing, this fully formed construct popped into my head, which is about the last thousand days. Because if you're a man, you can expect to live to about the age of 78. And if you're a woman, you expect to live to about the age of uh, 83. But if you're a 75-year-old man or an 80-year-old woman, what you have is a thousand days. Now I know that if you get past the age of 10, you have survived your childhood life expectancy goes up. The longer you live, the longer you can expect to live, you know? So it, it, it's not, it, it's metaphorical, you know? So I don't think anyone needs to subtract from 78 and that's our, or from 83 and start panicking, but it's symbolic of, if you are that 75 year old man, you're 80 year old one on average, you have a thousand days. And the question then is, is if you had a thousand days left to live, how many would you choose to spend in hospital? And for the vast majority of people, the answer is none or as few as possible. And if we really valued people's time, we would design our health systems so that they would meaningfully spend as little time 
as possible in hospital. And, and it's about valuing time. And it's actually, it's, a, it's more than that. I, um, I spent some time chatting last, last week, myself and my business partner, the incredible Linda Holt, smartest person I know. And we were talking about really drilling into that even deeper. What does that actually mean? And for me, what it actually means is never losing one's sense of self, sense of, sense of identity, never becoming just a, a vessel for disease, somebody isolated and dislocated, somebody who is in the back of an ambulance, someone who, who becomes a statistic. Because before we know it, we become that person who is giving care, not getting care. And why shouldn't we be ambitious enough to change the health system so that it does value our time and it values us as an individual so we never, never lose sight that at the end of every treatment is a person. And there's a wonderful blogger called Roy Lilly, and he always says, when you're designing systems in healthcare, start with the patients and work backwards. And sometimes I think, not out of malice, but I think sometimes we, we miss that point. So it's a go about going back to the thing we can all understand. We all get 4,000 we weeks in this life. We get about 30,000 days. We get about 4,000 weekends. So it's about valuing each of those as precious quite interesting when you break it down into those numbers you know um yeah make the most of it all those phrases that we hear you know no time to waste um uh, you know live each day um, all that kind of stuff but it, it's it all kind of reverberates here um just sort of picking up on the point you made about asher um you know historically you know we always think we're sort of pioneering of this but, you know, clearly it's it's not totally new thinking. It's just some of it's um, in new new terminology. And, yeah. you know, I see even Florence Nightingale, you sort of mentioned that in one of your presentations was, you know, you know, promoting this kind of um, thought. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, there's a couple of things she 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 talked about. Um, I mean, the first, you know, her dictum was, it seems a strange principle to enunciate that the first thing is a hospital should do a patient no harm. But she also talked about not keeping a patient in hospital a day longer than necessary and saying the same time, even that's too long and that the patient would have to recover not only from the illness or the injury, but from hospital itself. And for decades, you know, so she, in a sense, she, this is back in uh, 1863. And, you know, so in a sense, she got the notion of patient's time. She got the notion of the consequences of hospitalization. And, you know, for decades, we've said to people, go to hospital, you'll be safe there. And now we're going, yeah, about that. And, it's, you know, we're rethinking what is in that. And I need to be really, really clear. That is not to decry hospitals. You know, I didn't say the outset, but I'm, I'm a very, very proud nurse. I'm a mental health nurse and emergency nurse by clinical background. And worked in academic general practice. The last 20 years, I've worked with Linda Hall. We've got Health Service 360. So there's a bunch of stuff, you know, working as a clinical director, an executive director, um, what I call myself sometimes a recovering academic. And, um, you know, so all of those elements. And, and the hospital has a really very, very important place. 
but it circles back to that question is if you had a thousand days left to live how many would you choose to spend in hospital what would you want for you none <laughs> yeah and of that's course what say. yeah and that's what the okay. public says yeah absolutely you want to get out as soon as possible um or not go at all of course um if you had that that's choice it. so yeah you're the best bit forgive me one of the best bits is that if you think you see every cloud is a silver lining and if the if the recent pandemic this is not our first rodeo in when it comes to pandemics in human history but you know this one we have been talking about things for decades which we are now you know on steroids we're changing them so there's way way more uh video consults and that is a way of valuing people's time um it seems disappointing if i can be as polite as i can that a you know a government that was saying we need to get gps doing more video consults because that's what the patients want and now they've done an about face and said no we need to get them in front of the in front of the uh, the the gp which is just that that has a place there's certainly entirely appropriately but if you start with a patient and work backwards actually for, I, I would happily personally even pay to not have to go to my gp if i needed something you know because that would suit me um, and it would probably suit the GP as well and, and the practice nurse and others. So it's accelerated, you know, outpatients appointments, perhaps are a better example even that they can be done long distance now because it may be, you know, it's how do we rethink how we think about the delivery of healthcare. And one of the exciting things as this has done is it's accelerated some of the changes we've been talking about and that has to be a good thing for staff as well as patients absolutely i mean we had exactly that because obviously i'm living 300 miles from dundee where my parents were and 2019 we had a number of multidisciplinary meetings and um you know i did go face to face for some of them and then i started to think i can't keep going up there for a one-hour meeting so I said to my mum who was 85 at the time you know she's quite um, IT literate um, so take your iPad to the hospital we'll get it hooked up to Skype and I will just sit in on the meeting and of course the nurses were quite amazed at this um, that she was doing this and they said oh we're not sure how to do this ourselves some on some <laughs> occasions um, but that worked really well it saved me basically an overnight taking an, another day off work and yeah. I could just fit that into my normal day but I was still there giving that support not necessarily saying much but I could ask questions if I needed to and and you did think at the time that should really be promoted. I mean, we're all doing that now. So that's right. And um, it's environmentally better as well because you think yeah. about a 100 mile round trip. Yeah. That, absolutely. that has to be better for the environment too. So there's yeah. all of these elements that come together. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, and, and the fact that your mum was teaching the, uh, the healthcare staff, the nurses, and others, well, actually, if you try this, you'll find it. <laughs> that's great. Because I think we also have this slightly unintentionally ages or we you know older people can't do this who do you think are talking to their grandchildren around the world you know? so this is um 
it, it's a presumption and I, you know, I, I, I have to look at the instructions to say which way, which way a plug goes into a wall, you know, so I think we, um, we uh, trip over age sometimes as a reason and an excuse and that's not the case. Um, if you think about it this way, if you are 70 years of age today, in 1971, 50 years ago, you were 20 years of age and you were not listening to Dame Vera Lynn or Cliff Richard. You were listening to The Who, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, Clearance Clear, Clearwater Revival with Deep Room Rising, The Beatles, The Stones. You know, these 70-year-olds and 80-year-olds, they have rock and roll heartbeats. That's what they have. Mm-hmm. So, you know, don't be bothering me now with your wartime songs. That was old people is kind of how they might see that. And, and you know, I think we have to shift our thinking. It's a brilliant. I'm not exactly sure who, who actually coined it, but it's a lovely phrase, which is about gerontologists. The gerontologists, uh, people who study and care for older people, they're like archaeologists. They look past the ruins to the beauty that lies within yeah very good very good and 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 i guess that resonates with some of the um my you know my father had um, mild dementia and the one of the things eventually that he did was you know you filled out the form which tells you about the person um so there that the person behind that patient yes that what did they like to do what their hobbies were what did they what job did they do um, what films do they like? What music? And I think, you know, that is so important that because then people can have those conversations and bring the patient alive. Yeah, that's exactly why they turn from a patient into a person. And yeah. That's really what matters. So can I just, there was, I think we, we, we talked the other day about, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of evidence about, um, you know, deconditioning um, through immobility and, you know, losing your functional ability. But also this um, affects po- people's um, thinking. They're, you know, they get some cognitive impairment as well. So that physical and mental um, relationship. And, and perhaps that bit's less under, un- understood, um, you know, the effect on people's mind. Yeah, and it, it, it's an exciting area of neuroscience around it. And there's um, two authors, one Scott Grafton, who's a neuroscientist and a neurologist at uh, University of California at Berkeley, and uh, Caroline Williams, who's a British author, and they're both writing about movement. But the human body is not wired for stillness. And in fact, you know, the brain, maybe, maybe the job of the body is to carry the brain around. And uh, I don't think uh, Rene Descartes has got a lot to answer for. Apparently, he was a, he's a philosopher. He was a philosopher. He's no longer with us since the 17th century. But it is an apocryphal story that he was, uh, he was a soldier for a while and he was in trouble and he was peeling potatoes. And he came up with his dictum um, about, uh, I think, therefore I am, which means he created this mind-body dualism, dualism, this Cartesian dualism, where we have since then, and, and medicine has since then, separated out the, mod, the body and the mind. And actually nothing could be further from the truth because our whole thinking, you know, I've been listening to this wonderful book by, uh, again, a neuroscientist whose name is Daniel Levitin. 
And his book is called The Changing Mind, which is a neuroscientist's guide to aging well. Quite a long book to listen to, it's about 15 hours. But he talks about, you know, we don't have memories before the age of six months. And we've got very, very few before the age of two. And the hypothesis is, is it, it relates to that horseshoe-shaped part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is not just about spatial awareness, and, and, but it's also about memory making. And as infants, we were carried everywhere. And it's got a really, really important function in that it helps us to create spatial awareness, understanding. Um, it connects us in a meaningful way to our environment. So if you're out walking, you know, up, up in the hills or you're trail running or whatever it is, you've got to make hundreds of micro adjustments every second. Your brain is working hard to do that. Whereas if you're stuck sitting indoors in a nursing home, for instance, there's very little stimulation. And what we tend to do is people withdraw, significantly withdraw. So when we were babies and we were carried around everywhere. We, were, we didn't have to do any thinking for ourselves. We were just, you know, we were just lugged everywhere around. But as we become more aware, and that there is a clear correlation between activity and reduced risk of heart disease, strokes, but also dementia, because it is about keeping our brain alert and alive and keeping blood flowing and all of those elements. And that's why people get bored in a gym you know, on a treadmill, because there's very little stimulation, but you go out for a run in the outside and you feel the, the air rushing past you. That itself is stimulating. And I think we're, we're starting to see more and more the importance of that. And I don't know where I came across it, but I heard somewhere that when someone goes into a care home, they may spend as little as 15 minutes outside for the rest of their lives. And is it any wonder that they become withdrawn, depressed, lonely, all of those features of a, a hyper understimulated mind. So it really, really matters. Move, matter, movement matters to us, to our brains. It matters to our bodies. It matters to our sense of self. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the thing you, you mentioned, you know, the gym and, um, I remember meeting a lady who was um, this was during London marathon training and she had done all her training on a treadmill. Um, Now there's sort of dedication, but yeah, you just, you don't get that same thing as you say, the wind, the just everything. It's, it's just, you, you can't compare the two, can you? And that's, I can't even, I mean, you know, I, I, when I wore a younger man's clothes, I, I did four marathons, I think. I can't even conceive what it would have been like training in a gym. And I, you know, I just, I couldn't do that. So one, oh my goodness, fair play to her, but goodness, it must've been even harder doing a marathon because she wouldn't have been used to wind resistance. No, no, no. So um, it's amazing. (laughs) It's harder, harder to do it that way. But what a Um, runner's height you could have had at the end. (laughs) And, and, you know, very quickly picking up that point, you know, we do know, um, and you've done long distance running, there is a runner's high, you know, the release of endorphins actually is an important part of us connecting with the world, that, that, that sense of vitality that we have from exercise. And there's an old adage, you know, you never miss, you never regret a workout. 
Um, so I go to a gym, but it's a 30 minute high intensity gym rather than boring standing in front of a treadmill stuff, you know, it's boxer size. Mm-hmm. But you know, the times you really don't want to go and you drag yourself there, kicking and screaming with yourself, and you come out feeling, actually, I'm really glad I did that. That's back to movement. Absolutely. I mean, I suppose that brings us on to, you know, we were kind of focusing on sort of more the elderly population. But, you know, you've already mentioned the pandemic and all sorts of issues have arisen, obviously, um, beyond COVID. Um, some positive, of course, because some people have had more time. Um, and But others have retreated from physical and social activities. Yeah, very much so. And there is none of us, there is nobody who has not had been impacted mentally by the last two years. It's been tough on all of us. And is that thing about we may all be in the same storm, but many of us are in different boats. And you look at younger people and a significant increase in demand in mental health services um, that is created. It, it being stuck indoors is really, really bad for our well-being. And the social, social isolation you throw into. I mean, one, one, one phrase we're going to have to retire is avoid it like a plague because there's some people who clearly don't understand what that means with, when you see the carry on of some. But it meant that there's some people, at any one time in a population, about 3% of people are clinically vulnerable, you know, um, as I heard the other day. And what that means is it's actually even more scary. And it's... it's Offensively, it's it, it some and some. Some people are saying, oh, bring it, can't get out quick enough. And others are saying, actually, I'm really worried. I'm really nervous about this. And I'll be masking up and I'll be doing all those things. But I'm really anxious about reconnection. And that isn't only to do with the pandemic. I mean, I think we've done pretty well so far. We've got this far without mentioning COVID. But yes. it's actually about when you withdraw that becomes problematic and it leads us neatly to one of the other unintended consequences of what can globally be described as deconditioning in terms of the psychological deconditioning. And that's about loneliness. And Julie Holt Lundstedt, a a Canadian uh, psychologist based in the US, and she did a big study in 2015 and found that loneliness is associated with a 27% increase in early mortality. So she found it as the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's more harmful in terms of early mortality than obesity and even diabetes. So loneliness, and we've never, you know, we've never been so lonely as we have been, particularly in the last two years. The, so, the social dislocation the atomization of families, which is a longer term trend, and the disconnection that people feel, including from governments, the, the states generally have, the, the people have felt very let down. You know, I have to say, if you look at a case study of difference, it would be in New Zealand, where it's been a very, very different experience. And it's got the lowest, lowest um, death rate in, on the planet. About 45, 46 people have died in total. Um, that's a, a mortality rate of around seven per million versus the UK, which is about 2,200 per million. And that very, very high level of trust in the state. It's also one of the very few countries where life expectancy in New Zealand has actually gone up. 
and suicide rates have gone down. So it's counter to it. And then you, when you have a high trust um, in the narrative of a team of five million being kind, and that is, re um, and, and we are all part of this, actually people connect to that narrative as opposed to everyone for themselves. And that's the narrative that has been seen in other countries. And we see it also in the language as well. So we hear about shielding, for example. And I think that's problematic language because what you're doing is you're asking people to shield themselves from the whole world. They're not necessarily shield, being shielded, they are shielding. I have to say, I rather like the Irish phrase, which is cocooning, which is, uh, which is lovely. There's a brilliant uh, psychologist, um, Dr. Lisa Morton, and she talks about uh, protecting endangered species, which again, I think is a, is a, a kind and um, a much more beautiful way of articulating how do we look after people. Yeah, it's a kind of war, warm feeling as though mm. someone's someone or people are wanting to look after you rather than shielding, which is kind of very much a barrier. And that's how it the picture comes to me anyway. Um, it is. And then you are on your own because we can't come and see you because you're shielding. And that is, yes, that is true. But it's the it's the message that's being given and received that matters cocooning in a way is you, you in time you'll see this beautiful butterfly emerging again and i think it's a fear factor as well um that yeah. all, all that as you say the 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 the, the words are important um and people were so frightened of doing anything sort of against the rules in most cases that they were very incredibly compliant, which was quite amazing. Um, yeah, and again, this is where there was a view expressed that people wouldn't comply and therefore let's not, you know, go too early with lockdowns. But actually that misjudged the population quite significantly. People, if they, people, as Nietzsche said, people will, will put up with any what if they've got a good why. And it was the narrative was so out of sync. And that's what caused confusion, I think, to people. But what we also saw, and it isn't just isn't this isn't just about care home settings, but it's also important to stress that there's some studies out of the United States, and I'm pretty sure they could be replicated anywhere, where people with dementia were dying much earlier than might have been anticipated because loved ones couldn't get to see them. Uh, and in fact, I, I heard only at the weekend or just before the weekend of some folk who flew, they went to Ireland and they would come over from, in fact, it happens from, uh, from this part of the world, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and they couldn't get to see her mum, this couple's mum, and because uh, she was in a care home, there was a lockdown. So they've now gone, come back to the Antipodes knowing that they'll never see her and this person with dementia and that's really tough on families as for every person who dies there's about five people impacted by that so all of these things matter at a human level at a, at a micro level but it happens as an impact at social 
um, population side at scale as well. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, so I think just moving away from COVID, because I know we were trying to not go to COVID, um, but um, I'm going to go back to the sort of hospital situation again, because, um, you know, loss of muscle function. And I just wondered, you know, as a, a relative of um, someone who's, in a, you know, about to be admitted, you know, are there any kind of best practice protocols that we would expect to see when someone's admitted, you know, kind of some kind of assessment of what they can do at admission? And then what can they do at discharge? I mean, I've, I've no idea what, what to expect. So without lurking around the COVID space, but it's actually relevant entirely because it's an unintended consequence is prehabilitation. So one of the things that people can do is they can get as fit as they can be, if, particularly for elective surgery. And, and that's often recommended in the pre-assessment clinic where, you know, we want you to get walking and get, basically get as fit as you can. What we have witnessed is far patients presenting far less fit than they had been for surgery, which then has a consequence in terms of length of stay because they're not as fit after, after their surgery either. So before, before anyone... Um, goes in to get fit and I think it's also a mindset issue is really really important you know always get in your clothes I've done four weeks of quarantine hotel quarantine uh, over the last um, over the last 12 months uh, having gone to the Australian and doing two weeks in, in isolation and I think a mindset is very very important so you know I get up every morning make sure I have a shower my shave and make the bed I'll be in day clothes and it was a mindset thing I, I used to tell people I wasn't in quarantine I was actually on this two-week retreat and your mindset really really matters so if you have if you before you go into hospital and actually and your life make the effort to get dressed because it keeps you human make the effort it only takes it's only four thousand steps a day so it's not a vast amount is about you know from middle age onwards it's a it's a four or seven forgive me i think it's i think it's as little as four as you get older that's all you got to do by way of exercise and that doesn't mean running around a park it, with a walking cane or when you're just out with your mate do some exercise that bit is really important when you are in hospital What's important is, again, the evidence shows that people spend 83% of their time in bed, 12% of the time sitting up, and only 5% of the time moving. So move around as much as you can. That is really very important. Um, for my healthcare colleagues, and I was speaking to about 100-odd um, healthcare assistants in Somerset two weeks ago, I said, you, if, you, if the patient needs to go to the toilet and they really need to go, you can, yes, you maybe wheel them there, walk them back. Because the importance of walking to and from, so people feel that they have more sense of identity, they're less in the sick role, they are stronger, they start to take control of who they are. All of those things add up. And then, of course, when you go, go out again, it's getting out, moving about, and all of those sorts of things. Um, and hydration, one in, um, it's the eighth leading cause of death is dehydration, chronic dehydration, which was a shocking figure when I, when I learned it. And there's a bunch of reasons why people don't. You know, they don't want to be getting up in the middle of the night. They don't drink enough because not moving around and all of those things. But dehydration really, really matters as well. 
And the thing is, none of this is rocket science because there's very, very few rocket scientists. So we can do a lot of this for ourselves. There's a wonderful nursing, Irish nursing leader called Deirdre Lang, and she talks about protecting our future selves. There's never too soon to do this, never too soon at all. And also, it's rarely too late. Absolutely. And, and, and also, it's small steps, I think. Um, small, small steps towards it. It's not running marathons. It's not running. It's just, it's just moving, walking, yeah. doing something, isn't it? Yeah. Um, think about the park run. The park run is success. They know they're being successful when the, when the running times on average go down. They, they, people are taking longer on average to run. Because what it's doing, it means as more of the population is getting up and going. It's not a race. It's not like if you want to do a 5K race with the best of the runners, brilliant, go there. But most of us, and that's why Couch to 5K is such a successful thing, because it's just getting ordinary folk, you know, to just get moving. Absolutely. And I know um, Park Run, some, well, when, it, when I was doing it more was... Um, volunteered a couple of times and um they they were certainly encouraging people to walk as well yes, uh, because if people start walking it they get um enthused by everyone you know the numbers sometimes hundreds of people there and mm. they think actually i think i could do that or i can walk run um so yeah that was such a park run fantastic great initiative yeah, yeah. it's, it's um, brilliant and it shows it doesn't be it doesn't have to be beyond people. No, you know? it's it, yeah. it, it's not it's not it's not sold as you don't need to be an athlete. It's just anyone can do it. Yeah, exactly right. Um, and and it's free, and you don't need to organise anything. You just turn up. Um, apart from printing out your barcode. So <laughs> I'm just wondering if there's anything else that you think. You know, can be done differently. What some success stories that could maybe be rolled out um, in other settings that you know have worked really well. Well, there's a there's a, a wonderful uh, created by uh, a nurse who's a manager in a care home in Essex, and she witnessed. You know, she noticed that people were sitting in the wait in the day room, and it was like God's waiting room. You know, they weren't interacting and all that stuff. And she came up with this idea and it became known as Pimp My Zimmer. And what it's about is personalizing people's Zimmer frames. And so putting tinsel and colorful stuff around it. And what it meant, what it happened to this is they noticed that people, you know, if you think about it, gray, a gray frame is a pretty rubbish color for a Zimmer frame. And if you see somebody with cognitive climb, they'll see a frame and they'll know, oh, is that mine or somebody else? And I better not touch you or I'll get into trouble. But if they see it personalized, they did. So what was happening is they were getting up, they were talking to their neighbors, they were, so, they were, they were heading up and down the, 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 the home, they were less lonely, there was fewer falls because falls are a consequence of deconditioning. People, people fall because they've deconditioned. They don't decondition because they've fallen necessarily you know and it made for a happier environment and that's what i that's what i absolutely love is that these gems of ideas which flourish as a wonderful she was a then brand new 
graduate physiotherapist called Chloe Harris in Salisbury. And she had the idea, based on, on experience with her granddad, is what would it be like for us as staff to get into our PJs? What must that be like to be a patient, you know, in their experience? And what she started, I've seen it literally all over the world. I was in Melbourne a couple of, uh, well, it was in back end of 2018, and you had the chief executive, all of his senior leadership team, pretty much a third of all of the staff in the hospital. I did a, a lecture. Everyone in the lecture hall was wearing their PJs. And I was talking to them recently. They said, you know, they still talk about that day because it was a lot of fun. But there's a serious message in there. And there's two that really emerge. One is the staff saying, oh, I don't know about you, but I feel pretty vulnerable in my pajamas. And that's good because they get inside the emotional landscape of what it's like. Somebody who walks into hospital as a, um, they walk into hospital as a, as, a, as a teacher, as a lawyer, as a cleaner, as an office worker, and they turn into a patient. So wearing that clothes is about the, the, vulnerable, the vulnerability it, it induces. In fact, Lisa Morton, who I mentioned earlier, and her colleagues, they talked about you know, the symbolic embodiment of the sick role, the emotional and physical vulnerability that wearing a hospital gown induces and pajamas, but also that relinquishing of control to the medical professionals those three elements that it creates. But the other really interesting comments I felt was from some medical professionals who would say, you know, they were in their pajamas and they'd say, do you know, I've worked here for 15 years and the ward manager walked right past me because she didn't recognize me. Because it makes us invisible, it's a uniform. And when you get people feeling like that, they become much more conscious that it's the cognitive shift that occurs when you are in pajamas you feel sick when you're in clothes you feel better and coming up to four years ago we ran a, a national uk-wide campaign 70-day campaign which was sponsored by the, um, the the four chief nurses of the uk and they were fantastic and well, what we saw was over 700,000 people up and dressed and moving, which was just brilliant to see across that time. But we also were picking up soft intel from folk who were saying the registrars were discharging more people at the weekends when they saw them dressed. Because they would say, well, you look fine. How do you feel? And if you're a patient and you're dressing, you, you know, I feel a heck of a lot better than I did. Yeah, I would be able to be ready to go. It's that kind of impact that it can have. And it's a simple thing that matters. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about how people feel when they're dressed differently and everyone sort of dressed the same. It kind of removes that hierarchy as well, doesn't it? Across, yes, it does. Um, because often, you know, certainly in the NHS, people are dressed in different colours and you think, OK, they're a consultant. Oh, they're a this. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of barriers sometimes because of that, because of, you know, you know, less communication probably because of it sometimes. Yeah, it creates a communication gradient where you feel anxious about speaking up, but it cuts both ways because when you see a person who is, who is a patient who is dressed, it actually shifts the way the discourse is held because it's, it, it shrinks that communication gradient as it should do mm -hmm. very very interesting i love the thing about the um pimp my zimmer 
you know. It's great. And, and I've never really thought that, you know, gray was a bad, good or bad color. I've never thought about the color of a Zimmer, but yeah, it is. It's, you know, very yeah. simple stuff that people come up with. It's absolutely fantastic. The ideas mm. that people have. That's right. Do you remember about 25 years ago now, um, Steve Jobs from Apple came up with these different color laptops and that was absolutely revolutionary at the time. You know, in fact, it seems like we've gone back to the colors now, good gray colors we've got, but it was like, why should it be a gray box? Just because it's always been a gray box. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, it was the rejuvenation of Apple as a company because suddenly they stood out and we all want to feel our own identity. We, we want to be, um, we don't want to be just this widget in a, in a system. Absolutely. And, and, um, and of course they look great. Everyone wanted them, you know, and, and they cost more. So <laughs> absolutely. The, you know, I, that, I have one. <laughs> I've always used apples, but I thought it's just gorgeous. Yeah. The and, luminous green one, everyone wants to touch them and, uh, you know, show them off. So, um, so I was just going to, um, sort of moving on to say that, you know, obviously, as you know, I'm, I'm a dentist and, um, you know, so I'm not suggesting that dentists, you know, start talking about deconditioning to all their patients, um, because if I did suggest that, you know, people would um, would be um, very unhappy about that. I think that they'd, they'd be saying, I don't have time to do what I need to do. Never mind doing that. But of course, we do support um, in the NHS this approach of make every contact count. Uh, so my thoughts are that maybe just as a, a sort of very um, minimum, what we could do is we could have, with so many patients coming through dental practices, we could certainly raise awareness of this movement and quite easily have um, some signposting for patients and just a, a simple, a poster. When I say simple, I really, you know, easy to read poster that stands out in the waiting room. Yes, and actually the good news is is nobody needs to do any work because there's a, a wonderful Chanel senior manager in Bradford and her name is Sonia Noshin. But if you go on to soniasparkles.com, she has got dozens of posters, everything around in, you know, healthcare improvements and PDSA cycles, but also she's done a big chunk of stuff around uh, NPJ paralysis. And she's got this lovely poster and they're all sketch notes, uh, cartoony drawings, and it's called NPJ paralysis at home. And, you know, and, and she's very, very generous. You know, she encourages people to print them off and use them. And it can be put in a, a dental practice and pinned on a wall because what it's about is saying, you know, the post has got things like wear your day clothes, you will feel better. Have lunch at a table, not in bed, sit outside, get some fresh air, take small steps often. All of these little things, which are just little triggers, we know them, but it's a reminder that we should do them. And even that stuff, and if only one person who came through to practice each day took notice and did something with it, that itself at scale will have an impact. And, and dentists are, are fantastic. We were talking the other day about the long-term relationships that we get with our dentists. You know, they, they become very, very important to us, those of us who are fortunate enough to be able to go. And dentists have a really important public health role 
and it can be just woven into making each contact count in a way that doesn't feel clunky but it's just part of what dentists do so well today you know you're brilliant at oral health you know you're very very good at that um but even just something is saying to people make sure you drink plenty to have lots and lots of fluids drink glasses of water that's good oral health but then it also has a good impact on general health as well so if you only did one thing if you say to your patients take take drink more absolutely yeah and, and as you know when patients come in some you know we have those long-standing relationships they're rarely they're just rarely one-off events so you do have that relationship and they tell you a lot about their their families and just one or two things that you might throw away comments might just make the difference or just a simple signposting so it's not something that's time consuming and and I think if the whole practice is also aware of this the whole team knows about this um it's there's another phrase that we have in, in dental practice putting the mind putting the the mouth back into the body which is kind of this holistic approach Great so, that's fantastic so um yeah and um and I, I suppose it sort of brings on to you know you know often you think that as an individual it's it's difficult to change things you know how do you bring about change um and I saw in one of you, you talked in one of your um, videos about the today model and, you know, how how this allow is sort of accessibility for individuals to make change. Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's actually was, uh, created by Linda Holt himself. Uh, um, she's a wonderfully original thinker. We created in a coffee shop in Stratford-on-Avon about this time four years ago. And it stands for, it's a, it's, a, it's a change model, but it stands for time, ownership, diagnostics, actions, and you. So we've alluded to time being the most important currency in healthcare. And if you think about it, time is everywhere in healthcare. You know, waiting times, um, uh, wasting time in meetings. 70% uh, of the health services budget around the world is spent on time because that's about the uh, our salaries and wages, um, waiting to see a doctor, waiting to see a dentist, you know, it's, time is everywhere. Uh, ownership is about how do you engage people in terms of how do you help people to believe what you believe? Because if people believe what you believe, they will follow you. And we saw that with Martin Luther King. We see it with Greta Thunberg. Uh, diagnostics, in, in a nutshell, could be described, summed up as what would good look like and how would you know you're making a difference? The actions are what do you do and the why. And, and today is a, unless I was a super ourselves, it's fairly clever because it ties into what you can do and what you can change. The key to any change is you. That's what the why stands for. So how do you have a, as my sainted father would say, how do you have a word with yourself? You know, because people don't mind change but they do mind being changed and they mind change without context. So what is your narrative? What are the stories you tell yourself and how do you engage yourself and others in that change? That's what the today model does. And we do one day workshops and all sorts of stuff around that. 
So I think you feel quite strongly that whatever level you're at in the healthcare system, you you can, you know, where you are in the sit in the hierarchy, you can make a, a change. You're right. Yes, absolutely. I really do. And the thing is, change isn't really top down or bottom up. Real change is side by side. It's one heart, one mind, one conversation, side by side. That, I think, is where the change occurs. And saying, you know, talking to healthcare assistants uh, the other week, and I thought, what a brilliant thing that Somerset was doing as an organisation to have a study day dedicated for the healthcare assistants who often get the least when you think about it, you know. Um, but I was saying to them, they may have more in common with their patients than any of the people wearing uni other uniforms or badges because the patients they are looking after may be the person that could live on their street who they would know more about their lives than perhaps anyone. And so they have a profound influence on them, encouraging them to get dropped, encouraging them to have a drink, encouraging them to get into the toilet. So there's nobody doesn't matter. The nursing students, the dental students, you know, getting the, 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 the mouth back into the body again. It's sometimes those who are perceived to have little power that have, that have the biggest influence. And I tell you, power is, is not really all that interesting. You know, I've done jobs where I've had a couple of, you know, tens of millions of budgets and hundreds of staff in a nice corner office. That wasn't really interesting. What I have now is no budget, no staff. All I have is a little influence. And that is a lot more fun as well. So it's, it's not... We're not remembered, you know, at the end of our days for the job we did. We're remembered for the person we were, what kind of person we were. That's what matters. Yeah, absolutely. So, no, very, uh, that's probably a good point. I think we could, um, we could talk for probably many hours about this, <laughs> which would be a number of podcasts. Um, but... Um, we, we probably need to start summing up actually and um is there are there any points that you would particularly like to say in, in the sort of final summing up to bring it to a close um i think it, there's something about it's about how we speak to ourselves because real leadership starts within and sometimes you know we perceive ourselves as having no um we're not at the right title, but, you know, leadership isn't, isn't a title. It's a set of behaviors and change happens because first one person and then another, and then another believes that they can make things happen. And sometimes we underestimate the importance of the first follower, you know? So when I think back to the start of the NVJ paralysis, there was, you know, a bunch of great nurses, you know, uh, Tim Gillard, Pete Gordon, Anne-Marie Riley, Linda, of course, who's, who's a wonderful guide and news and a whole million thing others. It doesn't take many people to get things going. And it's, it, I think it's about, I, I, I say it again, start with the patient and work backwards. That's where the biggest change can happen. And the other thing I'd say is a lovely line by an Irish um, poet, John O'Donoghue, who said, be kind to others and excessively kind to yourself. And I think that's a really important thing in the times we live in uh, and long after, it's about how kind we are. 
starting with ourselves because when you speak to yourself with compassion it's so much easier to be compassionate to others and that's where beauty lies and that's where change begins interesting thoughts very thought-provoking i mean i I think that I suppose I would direct people to we're going to have a, a whole bunch of resources at the end, but I think you directed me to Henry Tim's keynotes mm. um, um, speech in Glasgow at a conference, and he was speaking about this notion of power and social movement. And you know, you already mentioned Greta, and you know, there's various other people who've just got those the change in you know the so this social movement um getting getting things started and then other people jump on it and as you say play out in their own way and in different parts of the world um very very powerful um so i just i mean i think i would just like to um end with a quote which um was in one of your presentations and it was this business again of time and you know valuing people's time especially the especially older people um and it's and it says for those with many more days behind them than ahead of them it's a time that's not available to be wasted and while we may sometimes treat older people like they have all the time in the world looked at differently they are the ones in a hurry so I think I'd like to end it on that note and um, just say thank you very much for your time and your insight and inspiration and fantastic to hear all the work that you're doing. Thank you so much and thank you so much for doing this and, and uh, the honour of the invitation onto this podcast and I, I really, really appreciate it. Thank and you. Have a well. Be kind others and excessively kind to yourself too let's chat health with Anne Budenberg empowering patients to be involved in their health care